0: I just mentioned I'm back from a a really refreshing holiday, and I enjoyed my my time away, just relaxing, fishing. Some of you that follow me on social media would have seen some photos of that, and playing golf. I played golf three times while I was there. So at the entrance to the golf course, there was a sign like this one. This isn't the one that was there because I wasn't intuitive enough to take a photo, but it said, don't approach the kangaroos, right? Right? So I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be a fun round of golf. Well, on the first hole, I actually found some friendly kangaroos. Okay, it was lovely. And and some of you are looking at that and thinking, that's a golf course? Well, it's kind of where I hit the ball. So uh, anyway, and then, so I thought, yeah, that's lovely. And I did not approach the kangaroos. But then, but then, I hit this shot. So I hit the ball. And the ball actually rolled up right under the kangaroo's nose. And it took its paw and tapped it and then just laid there. So, so I thought, okay, that, that's fine. I'm not going to approach the kangaroo. And I'm walking, and it was like 400 meters walk, you know, because of that kind of thing. But anyway, no, it wasn't really. Um, and as I got closer, I thought, okay, this kangaroo is going to get up, right? And he's going to move. That kangaroo still owns my ball he did not move, two holes later, I had another ball that I hit, it was a nice shot, it was right up by the green and everything, and then a crow or a raven, a local said it was a crow, but I came in, swooped down, picked up my ball and took it with him, so holiday is stressful when you like to play golf. You know, some uh, warning signs are more important than others, and I'm glad I heeded those signs about not messing with the kangaroos because I, I hear that can be pretty dangerous. But today we are in the third week of a series called Warnings what not to do with your faith, and we're continuing through the book of James, unpacking some of his practical advice that he gives us to live out our life. If you've missed any of those uh, messages over the last few weeks or even the series before going through James, go to our website, go to our app, go to our YouTube stream, and you can catch up on all that and be up to date. By the way, can I get the house lights, please, so I can see a little bit? Thank you. So today, James is going to focus in with a little bit of a different warning, some warnings that kind of go under the radar in Christian circles sometimes. We like to ignore these and brush them aside as not important, but these warnings that James is going to introduce us to today are dangerous, and they can be devastating and destructive in the lives of people who claim to follow Jesus. So we're going to get stuck right in here. Here we go. James chapter 4 and verse 11 says, Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Now, what this section teaches us is a warning that pride causes us to play God with people. Our pride causes us to try to take the place of God in people's lives. Specifically, he's talking about being critical and judgmental. Let's unpack that a little more. Back in verse 11, it says, Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. That phrase, speak evil of, literally means to slander, and the word slander there means to charge falsely with malicious intent, to attack the good name and reputation of someone, think politics, you see this going, going on a lot in those, those realms, right, but don't just think politics, think about your family, think about your workmates, think about your schoolmates, think about living life every day when this kind of stuff happens, I know you don't do it, right? None of you do that online, right? right? And you definitely don't do it typing stuff online, right? But you have it done to you, right? People slander you. They criticize you. You know, slander strikes at people's dignity. It defames the character of people, and it destroys reputations. It is a dangerous and destructive thing. Society recognizes the dangers of slander so much that they actually have made laws that allow someone who has been slandered to sue people for defamation of character. That's, what, that's how serious society takes this thing called slander. The Bible takes it seriously as well. In the Old Testament, there is no sin that is called out and condemned more than slander. If you go through the whole Old Testament and you, you look at all that up, it, it, it is the biggest one. New Testament also condemns it. Jesus himself says that the heart, it's the heart is what produces the slander. He says it like this in Matthew. He says, the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. It comes from the heart, Jesus says. Then Paul also calls out the believers in Corinth because they had this going on. And he said, stop it. And then he told the believers in Ephesus and Colossae to avoid it. And Peter also told his readers, avoid slandering. That is unhelpful in this life because it has devastating effects. If you did a study on that word in the book of Proverbs, you're going to find out that slander destroys friendships. Friendships. Slander causes deep, deep wounds to those who are slandered. Those who are slandered, slanderers, stir up contention and they stir up strife, and there's always chaos around them because they want to stir things up. But there's even more to it than that. It's not just about the effect that it has on the people that we are slandering or the effect it has on us. It, it, it really goes back to the heart of. God's law and who God is. It says this. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. Criticizing and judging others. We place ourselves in a position of God. Remember, that's what we said, is that our pride causes us to want to play God in people's lives. And that's what happens when we're judging people. It says it's God's job to do that. It's not your job to judge people. It's not my job to judge people. You and I don't know the full picture of what's going on in people's lives. Have you ever had some thoughts about someone or you're assessing a situation, you see somebody behaving a certain way, and you think, Oh my goodness, what in the world do they think they're doing? Why would they be doing that? They're crazy, they're they're this, they're that, they're And then you find out there's a whole lot more going on in their life than you ever knew about. You ever had that situation? How does that make you feel? It's like, oh man, I'm such an idiot. And that's just at home with my wife. (sighs) Interestingly, he says that judging a fellow believer involves judging the law. How is that? See, James compares judging the law and doing the law. He contrasts the two, and he says, if you're not doing the law, then you're denying the authority of the law, so you're judging the law as irrelevant. That's what James is telling us here. Essentially, he, he, he's telling us we need to devote ourselves more to obeying the Word rather than evaluating others and trying to assess how well they're, they're obeying the word, okay? We need to focus on obeying the word ourselves rather than evaluating how well others are doing that. So it says that we're judging the law, we're breaking the law when we're judging other people. What law is he talking about that? If we go back to chapter two, verse eight, it tells us the royal law is what we're breaking. It's the law that says love your neighbor as yourself. So James is saying, if you're being critical and if you're judging other people, you're breaking that law that says love your neighbor as yourself. Don't be breaking that law, James says. Paul warned the Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Slander, judgment, criticism, so, so dangerous. Now, some of you are sitting here right now thinking something. You're thinking, hang on, Pastor, does that mean that we never challenge anyone about their behavior or when they're not uh, following Jesus, when there are things in their lives that shouldn't be there? Do we never say anything about that? We never talk to them about that? The short answer is no, that's not what James is saying here. See, the word that he is using here talks about speaking evil or criticizing with malicious intent. The word that he's using here for judge is not evaluation, it's condemnation. When we are rendering judgment, when we're condemning that person. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us we are to speak truth in love to people who are living lives that aren't in keeping with following Jesus. Galatians chapter 6 says that we need to go and try to restore wandering brothers and sisters in Christ. There's two key elements that make a difference to whether we're being critical and judgmental. The first one, Matthew chapter 18, gives you kind of a a formula for how you confront things. And it's you going and talking to people, not going and talking about people. That's the first way you know. Are you judging and criticizing or are you actually trying to help and restore people? Are you talking to them or about them? And then Matthew chapter 7 shows us that we need to confront in humility, dealing with our own stuff first. It says this, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. He says, Jesus says, take care of your own stuff first. Get right yourself. And, you know, we, we, we look at this, that passage and say, okay, we're not supposed to judge people, and that's his emphasis here. You know, I think something really struck me this week with the, with the emphasis. It says, if you get rid of the log, then you will be able to see to help your brother with the speck. You ever had something stuck in your eye and needed help getting it out? Yeah, it's painful. Even if it's just a piece of dust or something, it's awful, isn't it? Are you with me? Yeah. Jesus says, get the log out of your own eye. Take care of yourself first. But there is a ministry. There is a role of helping people get the specs out of their own once you've done the work on your own. Right? How good is that, guys? How many need help with that? I know I do regularly. When we judge other Christians without... Love and without mercy, we are making ourselves the lawgivers, and that's not our job. Here it says, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? We need to let God do God's job. You know, statistics tell us that one of the most frustrating things for people in the workplace is an unclear role description. They don't know what their job is. Friends, God knows what his job is. And we need to let him do his job. And guess what? We don't get to write God's job description. We want to though, don't we? Especially when it comes to other people's lives. God, go do this to them. Go do this for them. You know, that that kind of thing. And we'll talk about ourselves too, how, how we want God to work in us. But We need to work within God's PD for our life, not try to create a PD for him to follow. If you go all the way back to verse one of chapter four, it says, where do the quarrels and fights come from among you? And it comes from you. It comes from inside of you. It comes from your own pride, your own jealousy. And that's why we're judging others. That's why we're critical. And you know why we do that? Because we want to make ourselves look better than them. We want to elevate ourselves so we end up tearing them down. Jesus told a story about uh, a Pharisee and a sinner who were praying in Luke chapter 18, and it says this. says, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee. Returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, that parable Jesus told, that illustration that he gave, is about comparison. And you know, when we compare, what are we generally doing? We find people to compare to that we're gonna, we know we're gonna come out well, right? We don't compare ourselves to people that we think are further along than us. Right, because we don't want to end up feeling worse about ourselves, we're going to compare ourselves to people that we feel like we are superior to. But you know, as soon as we start that thought process, guess what we're doing? We are judging, we are criticizing, we are getting ready to slander. You know, pride causes us to want to play God in people's lives. But look what else it does. In chapter or verse 13, it says, "Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year, we will do business there and make." a prophet, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Any planners in the room? I got two hands lifted high, and it's not because I'm singing a worship song, it's because I'm a planner, I like strategy, I like to have things organized, I like to know what tomorrow's going to be, and the next week, and the next week, and the next year, and hey, Justin, I love you. Uh, and that's why I actually brought Justin on, because Justin keeps me balanced in those things, in a good way, in a good way. I'm, this is sounding bad, but this is really a great thing. I love this man. Anyway... What this tells us, guys, for all of us that that, that are the planners, okay, get ready, get ready. Pride causes us to play God with our plans. Our pride causes us to play God with our plans. James seems to be talking to some wealthy people who had some business aspirations here, and it would appear that they were making their plans without including God in that process. And James says, this is foolish, for several reasons. He says that that's really silly. You don't know what you're doing for several reasons. First of all, he says that's foolish because life is complicated. They're talking about the people, the places, the time frames, all those things, but when we look at life, we interact with people every day. We interact in places every day that are sometimes unstable. We interact with economies that are unstable. Can I get a witness? We live in a life, in a world where sickness is real, and health or lack of health is very real, and we can't control that. 20 minutes before I came up here, I was wondering if I was going to have a voice, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Justin's going to have to preach on the spot. Praise God, he gave it back to me. Hundreds of decisions every day, though, complicate life. And whether we want to admit it or not, we actually live life in response to life. Because whatever happens, we have to keep responding to. And for us that are planners and strategists who who want to fight for control, who want to schedule out all the distractions and all the other things that happen so that we can do, execute our plan, this is hard. But it's us wanting to play God with our plans. He also says this, life is uncertain. They were planning a year ahead. But the reality is they didn't know if they would be around the next day. Jesus gave another story about this in Luke chapter 12. He said uh, he said this parable, The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest, a rich man. He thought to himself, Self, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, "You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry." But God said to him, "You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have. Pre- then who will get what you have prepared for yourself?" This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. He had worked hard. He had built his kingdom. And then his life was out like that, snuffed out just like that. Everything he had done was now left to to his heirs to squander it and waste it, right? Right? Anybody got teenagers? Yeah. Think about the teenagers taking your inheritance what are they going to do with it? <laughs> That's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, you, you actually thought about it, didn't you? Oh my goodness. What will they do? What will they do? You know, your life, James says, is like a morning fog. It's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. You don't know how long life's going to be. And that doesn't mean that we don't plan. It means that we hold those plans loosely. We make plans, but we hold them loosely, realizing the, the uncertainty In short, because we have an uncertain life, because life is so uncertain, we need to take our plans and consider what God would have us do with the days that he gives to us because we can't afford to just spend our life. And no one wants to just waste their life. Friends, God would have us investing our lives in eternal things that matter. Finally, James says, this is foolish, playing God with your plans because you are not in control. He says, you should say, if the Lord wills, otherwise you're boasting and your plans are pretentious. You are not in as much control of things as you think you are, James is saying. The remedy, submit your plans to God. If the Lord wills. Now that's not a magic incantation. It's not something, if you say those magic words, here's my plans now, if the Lord wills, now it's all gonna be okay. Because see, normally what we do, if we include God in our planning, it usually kind of goes something like this. We think, we strategize, we decide what we want to do. We make the plans to make it happen and then say, God bless that. Right? Can I suggest that we got that a little bit backwards? Maybe a whole lot backwards. What do we start with, hey, God, what would your plans be for me? What would you have me do? And then, friends, if, if you're unsure whether your plans are God's or not, be honest with him about that. Say, God, hey, I'm making some plans, today and I actually, I think they might be yours. But, hey, if, they, if they're not, feel free to go, and tell me to do something different, sincerely releasing them to him. Friends, today, I'm going to share something with you to sum this up that I actually believe God gave me. And I am not someone, if you've been around here very long all, I'm not somebody that, that talks about dreams and visions and hearing the voice of God and things like that a lot. I, I, I'm usually skeptical somewhat with, with those things until we check them out. While I was away on holiday, I was actually dreaming about this message. And I wasn't trying to dream about this message. I'm on holiday. I'm trying to Disconnect. And in this dream, I'm standing here trying to preach. And God's voice is talking to me in my head. And this, it was on repeat. It was on like a 30-second clip. And it was just repeated, repeated. I'm trying to preach. And I got this voice of God speaking to me in my head. Now, it could have been bad pizza, all right? So, so, but, but I'm just telling you what happened. And in that dream what God kept saying was this, two things. My people struggle with relationships because they do not trust me. And then the second part is my people are frustrated when life does not go to plan because they do not trust me. Now friends, I don't share that with you lightly, but it was so significant, so impacting over and over in my head. I felt clearly that that's where God wanted me to communicate to you today. My people struggle with relationships because they don't trust me. My people are frustrated with the way life's plans are working out because they don't trust me. You see, we want to play God with people because we don't trust God. That's what it comes back to. He is the one who can judge, and we don't trust God to do that job the way that we want him to. It could be that because it's because we don't trust him, because we know that he is way more merciful and compassionate than we are. There's an Old Testament account of a prophet named Jonah. You may have heard of him. God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, oh. got eaten by a fish and then spit up in Tarshish. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach a very simple message that in 40 days he's going to destroy the city if they didn't repent. Jonah went reluctantly and he preached the message and there was revival and people were coming uh, to trust God and obey God and everything. And how do you think Jonah responded? Chapter 4 says this, the change of plans Because God changed his mind about destroying Nineveh. It says it greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God. Slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So just Kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Jonah just preached the greatest revival of his time. And people repented. And Jonah said, I knew it! Ah! They deserved condemnation. They deserved destruction, and you were kind and merciful. Literally, that's the tone that we see here in Jonah. He is angry with God, wanting God to take his own life because he had not done what Jonah thought they deserved. You see, sometimes we want to take the job of judging people because we fear God's going to treat them differently than we will. We don't trust him to make things right because we know he's way more merciful and compassionate than we are. We believe people should get what they deserve. We love the scripture. When it applies to other people, what you sow is what you're gonna reap, right? But when it applies to us, we love Jesus' words where he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We wanna play God other people, but we also want to play God with our plans because we don't trust God. Illustrations of this are all throughout Scripture. Abraham and Sarah, if you, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was promised an offspring, a son, it was going to be Isaac, and Isaac wasn't coming, and it wasn't happening, Sarah was barren, so they, they made a different plan because God wasn't coming through, God couldn't be trusted at this point. So so Sarah told uh, Abraham to have a kid with the maidservant, Hagar, and then Ishmael was born And the Middle East. has been a mess ever since because they didn't trust God's plan. Moses was told to speak to a rock to get water out of it, and instead he didn't trust that plan. He thought hitting the rock would be better. It cost him walking into the promised land. Why don't we trust God? Because we're afraid. We're afraid that he might not heal the cancer. And you know what? He might not. Can you trust him if he's not gonna? We don't, are afraid to trust God with our finances. Oh, if I give to the building fund or I give, if I give regularly to the church and the ministries around the world, will God really provide for me? We don't trust him. We're afraid that he might not give us that relationship that we've longed for for so long that 20 minutes after we get it, we're going to say, God, get me out of here, right? Because we don't trust him. So we end up pursuing our own relationships and our own plans and figuring out how to make it happen ourselves when there are clear warning signs that that's not God's plan. He might not give us that thing, that home, that career. We don't trust him. But if God's not going to work to your plan, can he still be trusted? And friends, the answer is clearly yes, because you're not in control. Life is complicated and life is uncertain. We don't want to trust God with our plans, also, because we're, we're afraid that his plans might actually interrupt ours. A few years ago, I was talking to, to my little brother about his faith journey. And I believe he, he does have faith, uh, but uh, uh, he lives it at, at a distance. And I was challenging him about that. He's ho- holding back in his faith. And he said, You know, I know I probably should go to church and stuff like that. He said, But I know what's going to happen. Because I'm going go to church and then I'm going to realize uh, I, I know I'm going to have to start giving money. I was like, Why do you think that? Sure, the kind of church he may have been raised in. And then he said, not only that, I'll end up having to give a portion of my income, but then, then I'm actually going to have to start serving and doing more stuff. And actually, I believe God's going to ask me to do way, way, way more if I start going and following more closely. See, what he understood, he has great theology. He understood that it's an all-in proposition. That it's not a casual thing. That your plans, your dreams, and all that stuff get put on the altar when you want to follow closely with God. James closes out this passage with one final thought. He says, remember, it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. This is the greatest challenge, my friends. We know the answers. Today, we've talked about trusting God. We've talked about submitting our plans to his will and purpose and giving those relationships to him and trusting him with them. And James says, to know what to do and not do it is sin. Don't you wish sometimes you didn't know? (laughs) Because when we know, we have to respond. There has to be a, re- a reaction. There has to be something that we do. And you got two choices right now. You can resist it. You might have something inside you that's churning right now, and you can say, push that down, push that down. Keep in my plans, keep in my plans. God, judge those people. Or you can say, you know what? I know I'm keeping my plans. I know I'm being judgmental and critical of other people. God, I want to give that back to you. I want to trust you with that. Are you frustrated with life? relationships not going the way that maybe you think they should, your plans and your dreams not working out, what area of your life are you holding back on? What are you not trusting God with? In my dream, God said, my people struggle with relationships because they don't trust me. And my people are frustrated when life doesn't go to plan because they don't trust me. Friends, my challenge for you today is very simple. Stop playing God in your relationships and with your plans, your dreams, and start trusting God. Stop playing God. Start trusting God. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask everyone to stand right now. And I'm going to pray over you as a collective, as a group today. And for us as a church, that we, start trusting God, that we will not be frustrated in our plans, and we will not be struggling in our relationships because we are trusting God. I'm going to pray that over you now. Then after I pray, the band's going to come back, and we're going to sing that song, Trust It All. And during that song, if there's things that you need to let go of to release trust, There's many people up here ready to pray for you up the front. I want to invite you to come forward. I want to invite you as we're singing to come forward and be ready to release that and leave it here. That's the the whole thing about coming forward, coming up here, is so that you can leave it here. Don't take it out the door. It's symbolic and you can do that right where you're sitting. I get it. But it it will be a moment that you'll remember. You'll remember, I laid that there. I laid that criticism there. I laid that judgmentalism there. I laid that plan that God wasn't fulfilling and I was being frustrated by there to follow His. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for inspiring James to speak to us about our plans, our dreams, and how we want to be in control of everything and how we want to play God in other people's lives, God, thank you for confronting us with those things. But Lord, I also thank you for showing us that the remedy to us being frustrated and us being critical of other people is to start trusting you and letting you do your job. Thank you, God, that you do a much better job than we ever would. Thank you that, as Jonah described, you are more merciful and compassionate than we ever would be. Thank you, God, for that love that you lavishly spill out on us. And now, Lord, help us to accept who you are, to understand who we are, and, Lord, to align ourselves with the reality that you are God and we are not. Help us to trust it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.